Welcome to the Cheryl Broderson Podcast, encouraging and equipping you through the study of God's Word. This is a podcast taken from the Joyful Life Bible Study at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Years ago, and I've told you this story, but some of you really like it for some strange reason. Um, I never really had like a serious boyfriend, but I had read Greg Laurie's Christian Dating. And after reading that, I wanted a Christian boyfriend so badly just to try out, you know, each chapter that Greg wrote. And so I was kind of desperately seeking Cheryl, um, just looking for the right one. And there was this young man, and he he just was so godly, gotten saved. And um, he happened to ask me if I needed a ride home from church, and then he wanted to go to this park. And it was like in a track neighborhood, and all of a sudden the sprinklers came on. It was kind of weird. I'm thinking, this might not be the one. It was kind of the, the park that he chose that was one of the first indications. But then he said, I'd really like to get together um, with you tomorrow and we could read our Bibles. Well, oh my goodness. It was like, maybe this is, he wants to read the Bible with me. And so he came over to my house. We went out by my parents' pool. And he said, I want to study Joshua together. And I said, oh, Joshua, I love the book of Joshua. You know, here's this man who is a type of Christ leading the people of God deep into the promises of God. But there are still enemies in the land and giants. And he goes, ah, 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 let the women keep silent. And I looked at him and I said, I want you to leave my house right now. And he's like, what? I, no, out, 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 out. I, I want you out. I, I, I don't want to see you again. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want anything out. Just out before I lose it. Out. I'm warning you. Out. Leave now for your safety. Leave. And so, you know, he, he left. And then for the next week, he sent me all these tracks on being backslidden. He mailed them to my house, these tracks on being backslidden. And I, I went to a baptism. And at the baptism, this really handsome young man that I knew from afar came up to me and he said, would you like to go out sometime? And I was like, yes. Yes, and right then, this friend of the uh, 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 let the women keep silent said, wait, no, you're going out with so-and-so. And I'm like, no, I'm not. It was a park with sprinklers, and it was a let the women keep silent. I am not with him. And the handsome guy's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you had a boyfriend. I'm like, no, I've never had a boyfriend. You know, please come back. You know, but he was gone, and then I was like, he's not my boyfriend to his friend. So anyway, we ended up at the same college my freshman year, and I began to literally detest and um, just resent this young man. I resented him for the tracks. I resented him for the fact that I didn't get a date with the really cute guy, which was God because God had Brian, but I, I didn't, you know, get a date with the cute guy, and then um, he was, he just gone, written me a letter about how self-centered, how foolish I was, that I wasn't under the authority of the Word of God. Heavens, I lived with Chuck Smith in the next room. I was under the authority of the Word of God. But I was so upset that when I would see him, I would just like act like I didn't see him, and I would, you know, pass him at college. And so this one day, he came up to me, and he said, can we just talk? And I said, 
I don't know, because he had been under the delusion that I was supposed to be his wife. And he said, can we just talk? And I said, what? What? Like, you lowest of the low? What? You discriminator against women? What? And he said, look, I know you don't like me. I know there's no chance that you'll ever go out with me or, you know, let alone think about me as marriage material. And I'm shaking my head, yes, like Pentecostal, yes, like, yeah, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And he said, but I'm a child of God just like you are. I'm a son of the King of Kings, and you're a daughter of the King of Kings, and I don't think your behavior is becoming. And I want you at least to treat me with respect because Jesus loves me. And I was like, you're right, you're right. As long as you know that there is no chance in heaven or on earth for us to ever be coupled together, I can be so nice to you as long as you will be my brother in Christ and only my brother in Christ. He said, I agree. I said, then I am going to be nice from here on forward. And I was, and I was. But you know what? After I uh, got engaged to Brian, I skipped up to him. He came to Calvary and I was like, I'm engaged. And this man lets me talk about Jesus all I want. You know, that was one of the big attractions with Brian. He wanted to talk about Jesus, and he listened to me, and we got to dialogue about Jesus. Our first date, we talked about the Gospel of John. I was like, oh, man, I just hit a pot of gold. And I know I did because we still talk about Jesus. But in all seriousness, in fact, take a second and just look around this room. Look, those in the front, look behind those. Just look at the different people. I want you to know that you just looked at daughters of the living God. I want you to just know that no one in this whole room is ordinary. I want you to know that every single person in here will one day wear the white robe of glory that signifies that she is absolute royalty. Someday, when she walks through the doors of heaven, we will be cheering. Because your love for Jesus, the things that you've done for Jesus that you didn't even realize will be on display, and we will be going, woo! Especially Kathy Gilbert and I. We will just be giving it all we've got. Not only that you're in the kingdom of God, but that you are so beautifully glorified, that your mortality is put on immortality and your corruption has put on incorruption and death has been defeated and put down again and you are in glory. There's no ordinary women among us. There's no commonplace women among us. We are the beloved of the all mighty creator God, each one of us was specially made by God, and he saw our substance when as yet we didn't even have any bones. We weren't put together, and he loved us and wanted us. He said to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 1, I saw you in the womb. 
I foreordained when you were in the womb. God knew you would come to him through Jesus Christ. You are the purchased possession. I was bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. You all were bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's how much God thinks about each of us, that we are the purchased possession. So, in all seriousness, how was Timothy or any pastor supposed to supervise, teach, guide, work alongside the children of the Most High God? How are you supposed to do that? How are you supposed to babysit royalty? Can you imagine being asked to babysit Prince George, Princess Charlotte, or Prince Louis? You know, Kate calls you up. Hello there. Oh, I need someone. Oh, she wouldn't say I. I need someone to watch Prince George. He does have a lot of energy today. Can you imagine, like, how you would talk to them? Um, dear George, Sir George, you know, Princess George, Prince George. Can you imagine? No wonder Timothy had stomach ailments. got sick really easily. His immune system must have been so down and needed a little wine just to calm him down after dealing with all that royalty. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul was instructing Timothy on the right type of relationship between those who lead in the church and those are to be led there's a way to lead. And how do you lead? Well, we're going to learn that you lead with respect. You lead with respect, and you lead with discernment, and you lead with discretion. And as Paul said in Corinthians, who is sufficient for such things? Who's sufficient for such things? Not only are we handling the precious word of God, and we need to do this with absolute sobriety and authenticity because this is the holy word of the living God, but you also are the holy people of the living God. This is a serious responsibility. It's so serious that later in this chapter, Paul would charge Timothy before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. This is so serious. This is so important. This is so critical. So, Paul would say that Timothy was to distinguish. Now, when I say distinguish, I am not saying discriminate. I am saying use discretion and discernment between men and women, young and old, godly and ungodly widows, good and bad elders. 
in a time when there's supposed to be no discrimination at all. In fact, if you sign up for T-ball and you don't make any of the, re, the um, practices and you don't make any of the games, you're still going to get the trophy at the end because we do not discriminate. Let me tell you something. Heaven discriminates. It uses discretion. It doesn't discriminate by race or color, but on honesty and submission to Jesus Christ. We live in a time where all the walls are coming down. But you know what? My grandson, I bought him a little Ikea kitchen for my house, right? And I bought the Melissa and Doug coffee maker and I bought the Melissa and Doug um, mixer. He hated them. He ignored them. He threw them. So I got him an electric mixer. Like, for little kids, I found it at TJ Maxx, of course. And, you know, you know what he does? He tries to use it on the furniture like a drill. Does he try to make food? No, he tries to repair the kitchen. You know, my granddaughter comes in like, oh, a mixer, what do you want to eat? I'm going to serve you. Do you have an apron I could put on? She says it more like, Grandma, you got an apron? But, you know, nevertheless, there's a difference between men and women, and it's not just biological. I mean, who knew that you had to say something like that? Who knew that we would ever have to come to a time and say, I am a woman through and through? Every cell, my DNA, I've got that chromosome. I mean, seriously, it, there's a difference. There's a difference. There's an emotional difference. There's a physical difference. And there's also a spiritual difference in how we relate and talk to women. So older men, women, why? And he says in chapter 3, verse 15, that he was giving these instructions to Timothy so that Timothy would know how to conduct himself in the house of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. You see, in the church, we are to reflect the kingdom of God, and God made them male and female. And in the church, we are reflecting the purpose and the intention of God. There is nothing wrong with being a woman. I don't want to be a man. I want to be exactly who God created me to be. I want to embrace everything, even the faults, because they are intentional by God. I want to embrace it and be everything that God wants me to be. The needs of women are different than the needs of men, but in the same way, the needs of the aged differ from the needs of the young, and the needs of the widow differ from the needs of the elders. They differ spiritually, physically, and emotionally. And Paul is going to talk to Timothy about the discretionary way in which he approaches 
old men, young men, older women. Notice I didn't say old women. Older women, the way he approaches younger women, the way that he approaches and deals with the widows, and then again, the godly widows, the self-centered widows, the young godly widows, and the young, oh, let's just call them confused widows. And then the elders, the good elders, the bad elders. Why? Because the church is, again, the house of God, church of the living God, pillar and ground of truth. Therefore, our behavior and our relationships are not to be mere images of the culture we live in. We're not to look like out there. We're to be an enigma. We're to look different, act different. We are meant to exemplify the purposes of God and the kingdom of God. And we are to look like the family of God, the children of the living God. So Paul begins with the older men and instructs Timothy on how to relate to or treat or deal with the different congregants, how to exemplify or who to hold up in the body as examples, and specifically um, working with the men, women, widows, and elders. First of all, every relationship that Timothy has with every single believer in the church, no matter who they are, is to be marked by respect, by the way Timothy acts towards them, by, you know, Timothy's attitude, by Timothy's spirit, by Timothy's conduct. And, you know, remember how Paul said, Timothy, show yourself to be an example. Show it, live it, model it. Secondly, Timothy is to require that the other congregants show respect for every other member of the church, for the aged and young, for the impoverished and the wealthy without prejudice or partiality. And then finally, Timothy is to earn the respect of the body of Christ by his integrity in every relationship. So he begins with the men. Paul begins with the older men. They are not to be rebuked. This is the only time this particular word is used in the entire Bible. And this word is epiplesso. And it means to demean, uh, to put in your place, to humiliate. He said, do not do this. Now, it's interesting because there are other words in the Bible for rebuke, like the word onadizo. And that's the one that is used the most. And that actually means to point out somebody's fault so that they can correct it. It's different. It is not demeaning. It is not disrespectful. It is not, you know, unkind as ipileso is, this, this Greek word that's used for rebuke. 
In other words, epileso is never to be used at all in the body of Christ. We are never meant to humiliate or to demean or make anyone in the church feel like less than, or you don't belong here, or you don't measure up. Never, never, never. And it begins with the older men. They are to be exhorted. This is the tactic to be used with the older men, to be exhorted as a father, the same respect to a father, the same persuasion tactic that you would use with your own father. Now, Dad, I know you love me, but I really need this, and I know because you're so loving and you're so great. You know, when my father was dying, there were people that came in and tried to terrify him about the future of Calvary. There are people that tried to, they broke into his hospital room and they tried to get him to sign these papers in the hospital room when he was getting surgery for a lung. There they were. I walked in and there they were and they had these papers and they were trying to get my dad to sign them. And my dad just looked at me feebly like, help me. And I said, you know what? This is not the time for that. This is the time to pray for him. This is the time to love on him. There were people, there was one man who would call my dad and wake him up every morning so that my dad couldn't even sleep in. Demanding, terrifying. My father, in my father's weak state. And I remember the Lord telling me when I was dealing with my father, Never tell him anything bad about anyone in the church or anything bad that's going on in the church. Don't tell him anything. Don't be a tattletale. Don't ever say a word against anybody, no matter what. You go in there. Your job is to love him to the uttermost and encourage him and tell him who he is because he's forgetting and tell him how I have used him. And I remember one conversation. I said, Dad, you are, somebody was writing these meanest letters of rebuke and sending them out to all the pastors. And then at the end saying, Chuck told me to write this. Chuck told me to write this. It didn't sound like my father. It wasn't words my father would use. And this man was showing my dad one letter and sending everybody else another letter. And I went to my dad and I said, Dad, I want you to read this. And he read it. I, he said, I, I didn't write this. I didn't sanction this. This is not what he showed me. And I said, this is what he's sending in your name. And I said, Dad, you have always been kind. And you have always been gracious. In fact, you are known not only for the word of God, but for grace and for showing grace. And dad, I will admit at times, I was kind of upset with you for all the grace you showed, especially when it came to my brothers at times and I was a little girl. I didn't always like your grace, but dad, at this juncture, at 86 with lung cancer, don't lose the grace. Don't let them rob you of who you are. Keep the grace. 
hold on to that. I entreated him as a father, probably because he is my father. He was my father. That's the way. You know, we forget that the older men in this church need encouragement. We think, wow, they've lived, they've got it all together. And we're always thinking, we need to encourage the young men, the young men. You know, you're strong, you're great, rise up, young men, young men. But we need, we need to encourage the older men as fathers. Thank you for your integrity. Thank you for being here and leading the way. Thank you for even in your older age coming to church, seeking to serve. Thank you. You know, we need to encourage the older men to entreat them as fathers. They are not beyond encouragement and inspiration. The world might say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but that isn't so when you are dealing with the power of the Holy Spirit and God's children. Now, the young men are to be treated as brothers or comrades in arms. Timothy is to link arms with them and say, come with me, Brothers, a band of brothers going together. The Apostle John also addresses the men in his epistle in 1 John 2, 12 through 14, and he says this, I write you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his namesake. I write to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. You see how he's encouraging the children? This is what you're doing right. You know God. You've met him. See how he's encouraging the young men? Look at you. You're strong. You've got the word of God. You've overcome the evil one. But he's also saying to the fathers, we need you. We need you because you know the personality and the grace and the goodness of God. We need you, older men. We need you, younger men. And we need you, children. Everyone is needed in the body of Christ. By treating the young men as brothers, Timothy would be training them, allowing them to uh, get in, um, in, inducted into serving and what it felt like and what it looked like, and he would be setting an up-close example to them as he worked alongside of them. Now we get to the women, the older women that they are to be treated as mothers. You know what's hard is I talk to more women who have dysfunctional relationships with their mothers. And there are women who do not like other women because of relationships they've had with their mothers. And when you come to Christ, we have to go to the ultimate mothers. I think that's why the Lord gives us these examples of good mothers, like Lois and Eunice, Uh, who Timothy's mother and grandmother, like Naomi, like um, uh, Elizabeth, like Mary. We need, as older women, to show these younger women 
we are needed to show them love, to love them as daughters. And these younger women need to, to love us as mothers. So do the, the men to see us as mothers, that respect, that um, not exploiting, not putting too much on their platter, but to see them with absolute respect. And then the young men as sisters. How many scandals would the church avoid if the men of the church would see the women as sisters? Your sisters are off limits, right? In fact, you listen to your sister, you protect your sister, you never touch your sister inappropriately, you are interested in your sister's best welfare, and you protect your sister. This is what it means to treat the young women as sisters. If the church did this, the Me Too movement would be the scandal outside the church and never in the church. If we, though, you know, what do you say? Like, well, all those churches, it's not us. Maybe it's not. So let's show here that, it, that this is the way it's supposed to be. My prayer is, Father, make this church the example. You know, we were prophesied over this church. It will never be as big as it was before. But it will be the example that people come to see how church is done. That was a prophecy. And I'm like, oh, claim it. Where do I stand? Where do I, like... You know, yes, let's be the example. Let it begin with us. Let it begin with our attitudes and how we treat each other. Moving on to widows. Widows were a big deal in the early church, and much of the issues in the early church stemmed from the widows. These were women in society who were left without the financial support and security of a husband. So today, who qualifies? Yes, there are divorced women who also qualify as widows. In Acts chapter 6, perhaps you remember, the first controversy in the early church, the very first one was about the widows. There were the Hellenized widows, or the widows who had taken on the great culture. And then there were the Jewish widows, who, who really identified fully as Jews and not with the great culture. And the Greek or Hellenized widows said, you know what? We think the Jewish widows are being treated better than we are. They're getting their food first, and you know, the church is reaching out. This was such an important issue to the early church, so important that they got together and they prayed, and the apostles themselves, those, those 11 disciples, 12 if you count Matthias, got together and strategized on how do we minister and meet the needs of widows. How do we do it? This is important. And then they chose. They chose these young men, a group of young men, who were filled with the Holy Spirit, who had integrity. There was a whole list of criteria for the men that they would allow to minister to the widows. What does that say to you? It was important to the church because it was important to God. And they wanted men who would not exploit these women, 
not misuse these women, not be partial to who they ministered to and didn't minister to. This was a big deal and a big burden for the early church. The Bible says much about taking care of widows because there will always be those who seek to exploit or rob the church, and it isn't limited to men. There are some, there are always some who see the church as an institution or an establishment or a place where they can get money or exploit uh, believers. You know why? Because we do have a reputation for love. There are people who try to turn virtue to vice, to vulnerability. Think about it. In my day when I was a little girl, I remembered that there were these um, robbers, these thieves that were called the Good Samaritan um, thieves. And they would go to the side of the road and they would put their hood up and they would look like they, they needed help. And the Good Samaritan that pulled over, they would mug and steal his car. And it was this big deal. If you see someone on the side of the road, call the police. Don't try to help them. That's how bad it was. And there are those people who say, well, you know, the church is loving. And there were these widows who were going from house to house, telling their hard luck story, saying nobody's helping me, gossiping, being lazy and idle-tongued, and taking from everybody, just taking whatever money they could. I knew a girl at one point who was telling her hard luck story to everybody and even saying that she had cancer when she didn't, telling people she had cancer. She was collecting money from these sweet, wonderful people in the church, and she went out and had plastic surgery with that money. That's what I call exploitation. People thought they were helping with their medical bills, and there weren't any. There will always be those who come into the church seeking to exploit. You know, Satan comes to church sometimes, and he always comes to rob and destroy. So it's important that we use discretion, just like it was important for Timothy to use discretion. So he was told by Paul, Timothy was, who should be supported, who should not be supported, who should be encouraged to marry, and who should be left alone. It is important to remember that in Ephesus, these women had been heavily involved previously in the occult. Most of them were illiterate, and they were used to their pagan ways. They weren't yet used to the ways of Jesus. They didn't know the ways of Jesus, and most women could not support themselves. Lydia in Acts 16 is an exception to that. But by supporting the godly widows, a standard of godly behavior would be honored, embraced, supported, and known. 
they would set up a person to emulate. And, and the other women could look on and say, that's, that's what I want to be. My Aunt Isi, um, I've told you this before, she was actually divorced. And I think she might have been divorced twice. I don't know. There's a scandal back there before Jesus. But she was so godly, and she chose never to remarry and just to serve Christ with her whole life. And I remember, though, Aunt Isi was not even five feet tall. She was overweight and lined, just terribly, terribly just grooves in her face, and short, tight, curly hair. I wanted to be like Aunt Isi when I grew up. Even when I ended up being almost 5'7", I still wanted to be the stature of Isi because of her love, because of her kindness, because of her godliness. So these women are to be seen or brought forward to set an example. They're to be rewarded and honored. And the women who qualified were, first of all, not the women who had a family to support them. The widows with children were to be supported by their children, which would also show an example to the church of how um, believers were to support and honor their parents by respecting, by taking care and loving and valuing their mothers who had lost their fathers. And we're told that this is acceptable before the Lord. This is what pleases the Lord when the children themselves rise up and call their mother blessed. But Paul says the criteria for the women that are to be supported, that are to be lifted up in the church, are those who are left alone. They don't have anyone. The mortality rate for children was so high. Uh, you know, this reminds me of the story in Luke chapter 7, um, verse 11 through 16, about the widow of Nain, that Jesus, as he's passing through the city, sees this funeral sees this widow and knows she has no support. Don't you just love Jesus? This is how Jesus remedies the situation. This widow, she has no support. He goes up to her, he says, don't weep. And then he goes over to the coffin and says, get up. You need to take care of your mother. Just raises him from the dead. Take care of her. She's a widow. His heart, he raised that boy for his mom because his compassion was for the widow. So this widow is to have shown faith or trust in God. She's been an example of just trusting God. She set an example. You can look at this woman and go, that's what trusting God looks like. This is a woman of prayer. Night and day she prays. This is her dialogue. This is her conversation. You'll be talking to her and all of a sudden you're like, oh, we're talking to God right now. Ever meet people like that? Kathy Gilbert's like that. I think she got it from my mom. You'd be talking to my mom, and my mom would be like, Father, you see this, you know this. You'd be like, oh, we're praying. Didn't realize. you know. Or sometimes they're talking, you're like, she's not talking to me. Who's she talking to? Oh, God. You know, that just is what they did day and night. Over 60 years old. Woo, woo. You know? Well-reported for good works. And I, I think here of Tabitha in Acts chapter 9, verses 36 through 41. When she died, all these other widows came forward. 
Tabitha, in her singleness, was supporting all the widows in her little fellowship in Joppa. And these other widows are like, what are we going to do without Tabitha? Peter, you got to do something. Look, she made me this and this, and she made this for my children. So Peter just did what Jesus did, raised her from the dead. You know, this is what Jesus does with these situations with widows. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, and again, I think of the widow in 1 Kings 17, 9, who was a Gentile. We call her the widow of Zarephath. And she lodged Elijah, brought him into her house. Interestingly enough, in Luke 4.25, when Jesus is in Nazareth, he said there were many widows in Israel. But it's this widow, a Gentile who housed the prophet, who set the example, who was therefore, because she housed this prophet, her flower never ran out, nor her oil. She lived prosperously during this famine. If she has washed the feet of the saints, in other words, that she's served them and no task was too low. If she has relieved the afflicted, and if she has diligently followed every good work, if this woman has been a blessing to the church, then by all means, please support her because the church is indebted to such women because they have touched every life. It really does say to you, it's time now to sow good works and minister because you never know. You never know. I remember when I was 27 or 28, I remember looking in the mirror and seeing those fine lines starting. And I remember just this thought, like, Cheryl, you better work on your personality. Uh, you know, I knew, I know this woman who is absolutely fantabulously beautiful, just absolutely beautiful, but you know what? She's older now, and she never, ever worked on being kind. She never trained herself in godliness. And she is breath now. She's even slightly dangerous. Because when she had the opportunity, she served herself. You know, what is it the Swedes say? Good cooking. Yeah, good looks don't last, good cooking do. That's all I have to say. Time to move on. Widows who were to be refused, we talked about it, the young ones who lived for pleasure. And Paul said, they're already dead. Those who live for pleasure are already dead while they're still breathing. And I think of Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is destruction. I think this is one of my dad's favorite scriptures because he would use it all the time and apply it liberally to everyone and say, those who live for pleasure are dead while they're still living. And, you know, Jesus said the same thing when he said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life, in other words, the person that's willing to serve others and sacrifice is the person that will save his life. Now, I want you to know this goes counterintuitive to our culture, which is all about my rights. 
Our culture is steeped in my rights. I've got rights. And yet we're told about Jesus, who being in the very form of God, equal with God, laid down his rights and took the form of a servant. Christians lay down their rights for one another. Christians get inconvenienced willingly and joyfully for other Christians. Christians get interrupted from their tasks and smile. We're different than this culture. We do not insist on our rights, but every single right we get is a perk that we are so thankful for. It's not that we don't have rights. It's not that we don't exercise our rights. It's that all of our rights are submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are willing to sacrifice those rights. We are willing to sacrifice ourselves. We are willing to lose our lives for others, and especially for Jesus Christ, that we might have them for eternity and receive the rewards that are waiting for us in heaven because our treasure and our real life begins. The last breath on earth is the first breath of our real life, our new life. So Paul also warned that after a time, the young widows, he'd seen it, would become restless, wanton, full of lust, And what Paul is talking about is they were willing to marry anyone. They didn't care about marrying a believer. That's why he says, well, young widows are to marry. And here he says, you know, they're going to get married and they're going to cast off. You're like, wait, Paul, you're contradicting yourself. No, he's not. And Timothy would have understood. You know, like people that know you really well, you don't have to fill in all the little parts because they know you. I think that was with Paul. He's saying, look, there are some widows, you know them that they'll, they start going back to the world because that's what's comfortable, that's what they know, that's where their security is. And when they start going back to the world, they forsake Jesus, they marry non-believers, and then they're embittered at the church for what they've done. So he said, godly young widows are urged to marry godly men and receive that restoration of bearing children, managing households, and not giving any opportunity for anyone to talk against the church or the people in the church. Remember, this is the house of God. This is the pillar of truth. Or in Acts, these are the people that Jesus purchased with his own blood and God assembled together. Therefore, We must not give any opportunity by our lives, by our examples, to give the non-believers a cause to reproach, to reproach the living God. The uh, qualifications outlined in 2 Timothy 3, 8 through 12 about elders, as we move into elders, Remember, they were reverent, not double-tongued. Again, no gossip. Not given to much wine, holding the mystery of faith with a clear conscience and proven. 
like the widows who are wards of the church, elders with integrity were to have double honor. They were to be held up like, this is what you want to be like. This is the person. They were to be respected. They were to be emulated, especially the elders that labored in word and prayer. And I think again about, and we had it in our um, homework about Stephen in Acts chapter 6, who labored in word and prayer and really served these widows. The word honor also can be interpreted honorarium. In other words, and that's why Paul said, you shall not muzzle the ox that trains out the ground. They're supposed to, they're supposed to receive from the congregants. The congregants are to show that they're thankful for the word of God, for the leadership, by helping the pastor. When my dad signed the, um, you know, he candidated for this church with, I think there were 25 other pastors who wanted to be pastor of Calvary Chapel. It's the Calvary Chapel that's on Church Street and Walnut in, New, in Costa Mesa. You can drive by it sometime. That is Church Street and Walnut. GPS on the corner there. It was a little tiny church, and my dad wanted to leave a thriving church in Corona and a job teaching psychology at Riverside Baptist College to come out to this little church where he would clean boats and pastor this tiny church that was very divided. And he wanted this church, but there was a man in it, Roy Peebler, who had had a prophecy that they would know the pastor because he would want to redesign uh, the front stage of the church. So there had been all these candidates, and my dad came, and they took him out to Bonanza Steakhouse, now Mikasa, on 17th Street. And as they were there, my dad pulled out his cross pin that he always had on his person, grabbed a napkin and said, you know, I was thinking if you did this to the stage and you took the walls down, you would have, and they all looked at each other like, this is our pastor. This is to be our pastor. This is, this is the one. And he said, and I have this vision. I want to take people through the word of God. From beginning, I just want to see what will happen because he had been a four-square pastor and you were given a theme and a scripture that you had to teach every week. And my dad just wanted to teach the Bible and see what would happen. He loved J. Vernon McGee and he thought, you know, if J. Vernon McGee can do it, I can do it. And so he was willing to leave all that and come to this little church and be the pastor. But when he signed the agreement, they couldn't pay him as much as he needed to raise his four children and to live in Orange County. So he had an addendum to his contract with the church. And the addendum said that the church then, because it couldn't give my dad enough, would pay for his lunch on Sunday. Every Sunday that Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, would pay for my father and his whole family's lunch, wherever, whatever restaurant they chose to go to, every Sunday was paid for. Do you know that my dad kept that addendum in his contract? You know, he had to re-sign it every year. He kept that addendum in his contract until the day he died. That was part of his contract. You paid for my lunch on many Sundays. 
And my sister and my brothers, you paid for us to eat. We didn't have any money, and you paid for us to eat. Thank you. Thank you, because that was like the only day of the week I got to eat a hamburger. Thank you. And I love hamburgers. That's what the church did for us. And when we came back, my dad said, want to go out to dinner? And he only invited us out on Sundays. And now I know why. Because that way you paid for it. It was on you. You've treated me to lunch so many times. Thank you. Thank you. They were not to receive an accusation against an elder unless it was said by two or three witnesses. Oh, if only, right? Think for a moment how many people had falsely accused Paul. Think about it. You know, it's par for the course. Because if people can degrade and uh, falsely accuse the pastor, they can hurt a whole congregation. They can start gossip. It can bring the whole church down if you can discredit a pastor. James said, one tongue can start a forest fire. One little rudder on a ship can steer a boat way off course. It only takes one. And that's why Paul said an accusation must be with two or three witnesses who are willing to stand in the light and say, this is so. We saw it, we felt it, we knew it. The Old Testament also insisted on two or three witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19.15, and then again, Jesus in Matthew 18.16 said, there must be two or three witnesses. You know, I, I can't even tell you uh, the things that people would say about my father or about my husband. You know, one person trying to start something. Oh, the stories I could tell. Okay, and I'm resisting for time because we got to finish this. Their good works would be clearly evident, the good elders. In the same way that an elder who served with integrity, the word and prayer was to receive double honor. An elder who was sinning was to re be rebuked El Enco, or corrected or set straight in front of everybody. Not demeaned, not diminished, not cast out, but to be corrected. Doesn't that make more sense? Therefore, people seeing the correction and even seeing this elder receive the correction would then know and want to be corrected and want to amend their behavior. Timothy was to observe these men's lives. He was not to be hasty about appointing men to the position of elder, but to observe those men's lives. Because if an elder was caught in sin, Timothy was not to cover for him and not to ignore it. Aren't we in trouble because too many elders who fell into sin have been covered for and gone on to do it again? So they're not to show partiality in this. If he ignored this, he would not only allow the elder to continue in sin, lowering the bar for elders, but he would become complicit 
in the elder's sin. It's like Ezekiel, the Lord said to Ezekiel, if you see someone sinning and you don't rebuke that, it's on you, Ezekiel. But if you say it and they know it, then it's on them. So Timothy had to guard his reputation and keep himself pure. Paul also said that some men's sins are obvious and others are not obvious. But let me just say this, no one gets away with evil. Everyone will stand before the throne room of God, everyone. Nobody gets away with evil. That's why David in Psalm 37 said, do not fret because of evildoers, because of those who prosper in their way. They're momentary, but there's a whole eternity to experience. The church is a huge family, and we are to function as a family in our care, our love, and our treatment of each other. We are a family of fathers and brothers and mothers and sisters, and these instructions are relationship, relational because the church is meant to be relational. And these instructions, though they seem like, oh, instructions to be tedious, are so serious that Paul laid them before Timothy with a charge. Consider the seriousness of this charge. Not only that it was before God and the Lord Jesus Messiah and the angels of God, the host of heaven, but the fact that Paul would even feel that he had to charge Timothy so that Timothy would know the seriousness of this. Timothy was his son in the faith. Paul could have said, just do it. But he said, no, Timothy, I charge you. Timothy was Paul's disciple. He followed Paul, but Paul said, I charge you. Timothy was not problematic or rebellious, and yet Paul said, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus, Messiah, and the angels of God. Paul charged him because relationships in the church matter, because it matters how we treat each other. It matters to God, and it matters to the world as they look at us. If relationships in the house of God, in the pillar of truth are warped, then the witness of the church will be warped, and the world will discount Christianity and say it's not real. And the unbeliever will search elsewhere for answers, and the name of the Lord will be maligned. People will say there is no God, or there is a God, but he doesn't care or there is a God, but he's corrupt. We not only ruin our reputation, but we bring slander. We bring accusation against God's house, God's people, and God himself. So Paul charges Timothy that he observed these things without prejudice, that he does not make exceptions for friends or those he is close to. Because when a pastor makes an exception or shows partiality, he jeopardizes the whole church, undermines the staff, 
and especially those who are trying to follow godly instruction and be under the authority of the word of God. It's at this time that Paul urges Timothy, probably because Timothy's like, oh, this is such a big task, and now I've been charged before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the angels. Like, okay, Timothy, don't stress. I know you're sickly. I know that you've got this stomach upset, probably from nerves. So just take a little bit of wine. Like, calm down and, you know, keep calm and trust God, right? No wonder Timothy was told in the previous chapter, stir up the gift that is in you. Because he would need to be so filled with the Holy Spirit. Finally, seriously, finally, relationships in the church are a serious matter. We are one body, the body of Christ. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when one of our members suffers, the whole body suffers. It hurts us all. I broke my toe last year. You know, I call it the years of COVID. Like the introduction to my 60s has not been wonderful. I'm just saying You know, I broke my toe as if, you know, all the other medical things being in the emergency room three times in two years was not enough. I broke my toe. That was like horrific. A little toe, a middle toe. I never even knew it was there. And all of a sudden, it's like, I'm here. And I remember going to stand, and my whole body started to crumple because of one toe. That toe shot pain through every part of me. One little toe, like, "Mm -mm, if I'm not happy, you're going to know it. I had to wear a stupid boot. Like, everywhere I go, you know, and people can walk so fast. I'm a fast walker, but there I am. Please, wait for me. Boot woman. It was just like, ah, and it's just like, it's such a little toe. It didn't even grow back right. It's so... So deformed on my foot. But you know what? That's what shoes are for, to cover ugly toes. Hallelujah. Ever have a toothache that makes your whole body miserable? A toothache? One tooth. One tooth. You know, you're like, you're, you might be ivory, but don't start taking on attitude with me. You know, I whole body gets out of alignment with one ache, one part of the body not behaving. In the same way, healthy relationships in the church are vital to the health of all the members, the growth of all the members, the witness to unbelievers. We, as the body of Christ, are meant to exemplify the way and ways of Jesus and the kingdom of God, we are together the house of the living God. So let's pray together to love each other's family and show the respect that is due to the children of God. Father, we thank you that each one here is here because they were drawn by the Holy Spirit. They were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and they are precious to you. They are your own beloved, your own beloved. Father, we pray that you would give us the eyes of Jesus for each other, that we would prize, that we would love, that we would honor each other. Father, not only make us look like your people, your assembly, your house, but make us your assembly. Lord, make us fully your children. May we resemble our Father in every single attitude and relationship. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who makes it all so in us. And we thank you that it is not only possible, but it is our destiny because of Jesus who came, lived our lives, died on a cross for us, and rose again on the third day and is now at your right hand and has sent the Holy Spirit to invigorate, to bless, to motivate, to teach, to work in us what is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.